We have an appointment with destiny right now in the United States. We can't take it for granted that progress is just going to keep going. We're done partially solving problems. We have an awakening. When we all collectively rally, we'll be better. And we have a reckoning. We must take responsibility for the time that we hold. We need to change things. We have to continue to defend it and fight for it. If this is a start, we'll start this way. These are the cries of anguish. You choose to be ignorant to the communities you don't live in. That black person's life is in danger. Calling out for an end to racism. Choose to do something about it. Fix the country if we don't fix the haters. Police brutality. Racism is power. We just want change. And injustice. The forces against progress are still going to fight, too. People wouldn't get murdered if they complied. Reverberating across the country and around the world. The next generation of protesters. They want people to know about Chicago, Minneapolis, Washington, D.C. Is there an opportunity for lasting change? Will history redeem us? We, the jury, find Travis McMichael guilty. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to the Matter of Fact Listening Tour, Promises of Change. It's so hard these days to imagine what the future looks like, to envision how we'll find a path forward to address the profound challenges facing the nation when our divisions are equally profound. How can we talk about solutions without looking at why change is so difficult to achieve when it comes to race and racism? We take it to Boston for my conversation with Professor Ibram X. Kendi. Dr. Kendi founded and directs the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. That center, in partnership with the Boston Globe, recently launched The Emancipator, a multimedia platform that aims to change the national conversation on race. So let's begin with progress. Do you see progress in any of those big issues that are confronting us right now? We have a governing majority of Americans who, who recognize that structural racism is a thing. It exists. It's harming this nation. And that governing majority has the power through us rebuilding, really, our democracy to hopefully eliminate racism once and for all. And in 2010, only about a third, for instance, or so of Americans were recognizing racism you know, as a serious problem. And it got as high as three-fourths of Americans during the summer of 2020. Now, it's come down a little bit. Uh, but, but I take, you know, I see that as progress. You're well known for a book that you wrote called How to Be an Anti-Racist. What's an anti-racist? I think. To, to be anti-racist is to first and foremost recognize that we're living in a society with racial disparities and inequities. And you know, black people are more likely to be incarcerated and impoverished uh, or to be suspelled from school, let's say, than, than, than white people. Native people were more likely to die from COVID-19. Latinx people were more likely to be infected. And so to be anti-racist is to not see those people on the lower end of those disparities as the problem. It's to see policies and power uh, as the cause of those inequities. And it's to challenge those policies and that power uh, and to replace them with more equitable policies. So it's active. You can't just sit around and do nothing and expect this status quo of inequality uh, to, 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 to go away. The Center for 
anti-racist research at Boston University is uh, what you run, obviously. What's your overarching goal? You know, we really have to be able to document the racial disparities in, in health, in, in education, and why? Why in criminal that, so justice. Why is the documentation so critical? Because those disparities allow us to answer the next question. What are the causes of those? If we assume that the racial groups are equals, then if there's a disparity, it must be because of something structural. But we also want to identify uh, sort of evidence-based policies that have the capacity to reduce those disparities and inequities. So a, a local legislator or a local activist in Arizona who is, is, is serious about reducing or eliminating housing insecurity, they will know what they can advocate for based on evidence. And so I'm, I'm really talking about research, policy, narrative, and advocacy, which are the four pillars of our work. Dr. Kendi, so nice to talk to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Up next on the Matter of Fact listening tour. Posting Black Lives Matter on your social media feeds is not enough. If you really want equity, if you really want change, you will find ways to invest in people and communities so they can generate wealth. The billion dollar investment that could literally change Chicago's future. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. switch our focus from Boston to Chicago, where a first-of-its-kind scholarship program will give thousands of Chicago public school students and their parents a pathway to economic success. How? A project called Hope Chicago is pledging a billion dollars over 10 years to cover the full cost of attending any participating college or university. That's the full cost for a student and their parent. If successful, it will be the largest private scholarship program focused on one city. Matter of fact, correspondent Jessica Gomez has a look at the program. And cadence. And cadence. Exercise. An early morning One, Army two. ROTC workout at Chicago State University. Position of attention, move. The military, how freshman Anaya O'Neill planned to pay for college. I grew up in Inglewood. Um, if you know what that is, Inglewood, Chicago, not the best neighborhood, really violent, a lot of shootings, a lot of killings. Anaya, raised by a single mother, is the youngest and only sibling to enroll in college, but there was no money to pay for it. The education, me getting my education, that's my way of getting out. What we're gonna do, pull out a piece of paper for me. But now Anaya doesn't have to rely on the military to pay for school. She recently learned her tuition at Chicago State has been covered. It's hard to persist when you have all this family trauma at home. The money coming from the new nonprofit, Hope Chicago, co-founded by wealthy entrepreneur Pete Cadence. There is no time to wait. Kids are getting killed every single day in the South and West Side. Cadence, who made hundreds of millions of dollars, creating one of the largest cannabis companies in the country. Tuition, room and board, books and fees will be paid for you, and you will go to college for free is now making it his mission to give back. The last couple of years, he's paid the college tuition for high school graduates in his hometown of Toledo, Ohio, and their parents as well. Poverty is multi-generational. And so if you're just giving one generation educational access, 
Is that enough to solve poverty? It's not about readiness. It really is about finances. Cadence, with help from former Chicago Public Schools Superintendent Dr. Janice Jackson, take that illusion and use it in a sentence, is now bringing the same scholarship model to Chicago. There's a huge misconception that college is free if you come from a low socioeconomic background. That simply isn't true. How many people have no idea how they're going to pay for college? Raise your hand and be honest. Jackson says of the more than 60% of CPS graduates who enroll in college, fewer than a third finish, mostly because of financial pressures. I've lost count of how many kids that have come home for a bill in school that wasn't covered by financial aid or some kind of emergency or parking tickets. I mean, all sorts of things, a medical emergency, and that's the end of their um, collegiate career. Hello. I mean, this is a really big dorm room. Yes, yeah, a lot of space. I think Anaya O'Neill's motivation, not only the financial safety net, I was going to see how classes are going, but the academic counseling and mental health help included in the scholarship. If I'm, I've been struggling with things, I can call somebody, ask them a question. They're there to help me. I'm looking at it like superhero. Somebody's there to come to my rescue. This is the most important civic initiative ever launched in the city by far. Whenever I meet with corporate executives, you know, I say, folks, Posting Black Lives Matter on your social media feeds is not enough. Saying you're going to hire more minorities for hourly work or hourly work is not enough. You know, if you really want equity, if you really want change, you will find ways to invest in people and communities so they can generate wealth. An investment, Caden says, that will pay off for the city of Chicago. If we get our children and our families educated, we begin not to solve only the educational deficit, but we get, begin to solve financial deficits, mental health deficits, longevity deficits. Violence reduction uh, is going to be a big, big piece of this as well. This is a collective move for the soul of this city. We cannot sit on the sidelines. We cannot abdicate our responsibilities as leaders, civic and corporate leaders in this city. We have to get in the game. I just see that it's way more to life than what I've grown up around. I feel safe. I feel like I can focus more at school. And I just feel like this environment is more um, conducive towards my success. Success, Anaya says, that finally feels within reach. In Chicago, for The Listening Tour, I'm Jessica Gomez. Up next on the Matter of Fact Listening Tour, we can be some of the fiercest fighters for racial and economic justice in the country. Meet the woman organizing Southerners in an effort she calls Rednecks for Black Lives. Maybe every movement needs a bumper sticker. Rednecks for Black Lives seems made for one. Beth Howard, the rural Kentucky campaign director for showing up for racial justice, came up with a slogan that has since become the name of a Facebook group interested in racial justice issues. I'm talking with y'all today, my fellow rednecks. My name is Beth Howard. I grew up in a majority white working class community in rural Eastern Kentucky. I'm a hillbilly and a redneck, and I'm showing up in defense of black lives. I wrote the letter Rednecks for Black Lives, and it was in response to the largest uprising of racial justice that I had ever seen or experienced. And it was happening in the wake 
of the police murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I was looking um, at my social media feed. I kept seeing so many people um, from Appalachia, beloved people in my life, sharing um, things about what was happening in the uprisings and about police murders of black people, things that were false and um, things that were very hateful. It was heartbreaking. And all I could think about was the story of the Battle of Blair Mountain. A multiracial group of 8,000 miners fought coal company operators to unionize. The miners were called rednecks because of the red bandanas tied around their necks to indicate they were union. For decades, the label redneck has been thrown at us to degrade us, but it's time we reclaim it. I was thinking we could bring in. I work for showing up for racial justice and we are a national organization who are bringing hundreds of thousands of white people into the movement for racial and economic justice. We're going and knocking on doors with people who no one knocks on their doors to ask them what they think, what they care about, what their lives are like, what they want for their communities. We're told to blame black folks, immigrants, and people of color for our suffering. Hello. <laughs> hey, how are you? I am good, how are you? Jerome Scott became my mentor um, because um, he was playing an advisory role on some of the work I was doing in the South. Getting a better sense of how people grew up in Appalachia and me growing up in the ghetto of Detroit um, really set the basis for us to have something good. There's so much commonality, which I think proves a lot about the work that we're both trying to build. And so I think our friendship will do a lot in terms of showing to the other folks in our lives that a friendship like this can happen and that if we look outward, we might be able to see where greater and greater numbers of black and white people have the basis for a friendship, but also a basis for a political relationship. People often want to write us off. They look at the South and Appalachia as what's wrong with the country. I know we can be some of the fiercest fighters for racial and economic justice in the country. It's time to make a choice. We have everything to gain. Love and solidarity, Beth. Later, civil rights icon Dolores Huerta on her fight for farm worker rights. Find out what's next for this 91-year-old powerhouse who says her work is not done. Dolores Huerta was born on April 10, 1930, in a small mining town in the mountains of New Mexico. Her father was a farm worker, a miner by trade, and a union activist. Dolores found her own calling as an organizer in Stockton, California. In 1955, she met Cesar Chavez, a like-minded organizer. The two would make history with a shared vision for organizing farm workers and promoting worker rights. Dolores Huerta continues her advocacy. In a rare interview, we talked about the personal cost of change and her message for the generations that follow her. 
thank you for talking with me. Take a look back and tell me what, what you're most what you're most proud of. Uh, I believe, you know, passing the amnesty bill in 1986, where a lot of immigrants were able to get their legalization status, you know, getting the uh, farm workers uh, the right to have a union. And there's only, you know, three states in the United States where farm workers have that right, and that is California, Hawaii, and now New York, New York State. And so there's still a lot of work to, to be done. Farm workers all over the country, except for those three states, still do not have unemployment insurance. Often people talk about the gap in generations. Uh, and yet I know that a lot of the people who hang on your every word are, are very young people who look to you for inspiration. What do you, what do you think your legacy is ultimately? I hope that my legacy is one of an activist, uh, one of being an organizer, one that inspires people to take time out of their life to do the civic work that we need to do. Because I do believe we have this moment, uh, as Franklin Roosevelt said again, we have uh, an appointment with destiny. We are at this moment right now when we can go forward, make the changes that we need to make to have a peaceful and a just society, not only socially but economically. I think that we can make it happen. And as we say in Spanish, yes, we can. Yes, I can. Si se puede. Dolores Huerta, nice to talk to you. Thank you for joining me. Still ahead, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor issues her opinion. We spend so much time concentrating on our differences that we forget the things that are the same for all of us. On what can help heal our divides? think about the profound divisions in the nation, you do wonder, is there a way to excise the hate? Will America's democracy survive if we can't find ways to have informed, meaningful conversations with people with whom we have profound disagreements? This is a topic I pose to a woman with a unique perspective who sits on the highest court in the land. We spend so much time concentrating on our differences that we forget to look at all of the things that are the same for all of us. Love of family, loyalty to friends, our respect for community, our sense of wanting to be good and to give good things to others. But how does the country come together? By remembering that. We're here to support this country, to make it better, to improve this democracy. But if you can look at the person across the aisle with respect, at least, you can engage and talk. And if you engage and talk, you can eventually come to compromise. Sometimes you do it because, and I know a lot of people don't agree with this, because you begin to understand the other person's needs. And once you do that, you begin to appreciate where the compromises can come from. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. So nice to chat with you. Thank you. It was lovely to see you, Sylvia. My thanks to all of our guests and to all of you who are watching. I do hope you'll join me every weekend for Matter of Fact, where we always have conversations as diverse as America. Be sure to check out our latest Matter of Fact listening tour, Trailblazers, Troublemakers, and Dreams at matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.